0: It is said that uh, after countless lifetimes of uh, cultivating the paramitas or the virtues, universal virtues which take one to full awakening, That after countless lifetimes of cultivating these virtues, like generosity, restraint, renunciation, wisdom, vigor, patience, truthfulness, resolution, kindness, and equanimity, that after countless lifetimes, that uh, By the time of his last life, uh, when the Buddha awakened as the Buddha, that he he had uh, beautiful features. Very noble, dignified bearing, very beautiful complexion, lovely voice. Anyway, the Buddha had a disciple that loved gazing at the Buddha. And he would, uh, he was just enjoyed being around the Buddha, gazing at the Buddha, and uh, delighted in the thought, I am close to the Buddha, which is not a bad thing. But the Buddha saw that he wasn't getting the message. So he sent him off to a faraway place to practice. What in Thailand you might call a branch monastery, I suppose, you know, there was all sorts of places to practice. And Ajahn Chah would sometimes send monks out to faraway places. Anyway, this monk got sent off, and he got very dejected because he thought, And sent away from the Buddha, separated from the Buddha, rejected by the Buddha. So he was really feeling very sorry for himself. And the Buddha, with his uh, keen senses, read his mind, sensed what he was thinking and appeared before him. I can't remember this monk's name, and he says, is uh, this true, is what you're thinking? And the monk said, "Yes, I mean, I was sent away from the fully awakened one, the Buddha. And the Buddha points to his body and says, "You think this is the Buddha? This body? what's going to happen to this body? This body, like all other bodies will will." Uh, go back to the earth, back to the elements. The earth will go to the earth element, the water to the water element, the, the fluid to the fluid element, the fire to the fire element, the air to the air element, it will be emptied. It's here now, it will be emptied. So the Buddha said, this is not the Buddha, he made this famous statement, he or she, who sees the Dharma, sees the Buddha. The one who sees the Dharma, the Dharma, the true nature of things, that's the one who sees the Buddha, knows the Buddha. Now, obviously, the external manifestation of the Buddha, which is mortal. Is, is significant, it's important, it's from that external manifestation that the Dhamma flowed. It's from the external manifestation that one could go and ask a question, get a response. But that that's not the real Buddha, that's not the, the that's not what we wake up to, that's not what never dies, what's called the eternally dwelling Buddha, the undying Buddha that which never dies. So where is the Buddha? What could that mean? Where is, where is it? Where is the, that which knows, that which never dies? In the famous uh, Mahayana teaching that the Buddha gave, uh, which is called the Vajra Sutra, the Diamond Sutra, one of the lines is uh, to the same point, he or she who sees me in form or seeks me in sound, they practice a misguided way and do not find the Tathagata, sees me in form. Oh, there's the Buddha. Seeks me in sound. They practice a misguided way. Their their way, their way to awakening has diverged from the true way. They don't find, they don't see the Tathagata, they don't come to the Tata, means such, the one who is arrived at suchness, still in the midst of apparent movement, but has arrived or gone beyond birth and death. The Buddha's pointing to the tendency of the mind of living beings to take marks, to be true and real, designations, which, are, which originate from the thinking mind, like there's a Buddha. It's got that shape. The classical marks are me. This is me the mark of the body, this is me, it's my body. This is my strength, it's my insight, my happiness, my despair, my confusion. You, another big mark. Well, it seems true, but actually it's a mark. It's something that we create, we add. You, they don't know what they're doing. Or you don't know what you're doing. Or you, you're the most wonderful one. You're the one that's going to change my life. You're the one that's going to make me happy, and what happens when we do that? You're the one of those who make me happy, and we grasp at that what seems real, real because that's what it—it's so obvious. It's you. You're over there, and I'm need you. And how often, when there's not an understanding of marks, not an understanding of the way we, the mind designates and 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 projects what seems to be a reality out there. As Blake put it, uh, you know, he who binds to himself a joy. We, we take something else out. That's me, it's mine. Binds to ourself a joy. Does the winged life destroy? The true life is winged. means it's... Ephemeral, the true vitality in life is actually something that's not a mark. It's something that defies thingness. He who binds to himself for joy does the winged life destroy, but he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity sunrise. But when we bind something to ourself, take it to be mine, that's all based on marks. It's all based on the way we designate what the Buddha might call lakana, characteristic. It's a characteristic born of sunya, perception. Which is actually a fleeting thing. But when we don't understand perception, that fleeting thing that says you me, mine, great, horrible, that fleeting perception gets concretized into a word which is also ephemeral, the word's also ephemeral, me, you, it's there and then it's gone. But we don't see that because of the nature of language to be remembered, it, it, it assumes a, a concrete, seemingly real, quality and so this perception linked up with language then concretizes and fragments the world to me to you into this into that into good into bad into here into there and tomorrow into to yesterday. How often do we fall in love and, you know, you're going to make me happy. And then uh, not too long and we want to kill them. How could you change? How could you let me down? How could you do this to me? That was one of the reasons I ordained. I just, I, this big question came to me. I thought, Wow. I saw myself falling in love when I was 24. and then I get angry enough, you feel like killing somebody, the person you fall in love with. And I'm just thinking, this is weird. Why do so many people who think they're in love with each other hurt each other? What's that about? That was a question. What is that about? And I actually had the conscious thought. Uh, But before I went off and ordained, I found myself falling in love with someone else. And I actually had the conscious thought. Kitty Zorro. I didn't have the name Kitty Zorro. Randy. I said, you are not capable (laughs) of, uh, I don't know what the exact words were, but I thought, you know, you're just not mature enough. You don't understand. You don't understand what goes on. In the mind, I sensed that there was, I couldn't just keep believing that it was always their fault. I realized there's something in here that we don't understand. Why the essence of suffering when the Buddha said, in short, he summed it up, that in short, the five focuses of the grasping mind are suffering. The grasping mind grasps on the basis of marks, lakanas, what it takes to be realities. My body, my feelings, success. It's a mark, meaning we, we can recognize it. Candle, one that's going properly. Ooh, that's a improper candle over there. It's not burning right. Who's in charge of the shrine? What time did I get up by here? Letting improper, I don't know what kind of retreat this is. I could get, it's a mark. A candle's not, that's when one, But but notice how we can take What is a flash and a perception and turn it into, then as we grasp at it, I don't know who's in charge of the shrine, but wait a minute, let's back up a little more. Who makes that candle? That's a defective candle, African candle probably. God, I can't believe it. How much did we pay for that candle? You know, making marks, getting oneself into this huff. When we grasp at a mark, when the grasping mind takes a mark and climbs onto it or leans on it, that process is called birth, meaning there's the sense that there's some stability there. Classical places we look for stability are like happiness, being pleased. Can recognize it when it's a pleasing sight or pleasing taste or pleasing feeling in the body mind yes oh it's going I've turned the corner yes it was a tough battle but um, nine days that's no, not bad turn the corner now that's lovely to turn the corner but if we then camp set camp up there what is that what happens there Then we get a stomach ache, or we've just turned the corner and we don't see the root trip over it. (laughs) Scuff up our knee and can't sit for a while. And to the extent that we took birth in having turned the corner to that pleasant feeling, then we feel dislocated. true of success, true of praise, true of happiness, true of... And when we delight and get excited about the pleasing marks and recoil and dejected by the painful marks, then our life lurches all the time and we find people to blame, ourselves to blame, till we meet a wise being like the Buddha who says, wait a minute, that's the nature of the conditioned world. Or as Ajahn Chah would say, what are you doing going around asking a duck why it's not a chicken? It's like arguing with a duck. What are you quacking for? You're supposed to, come on, you can do it. cuckle it'll do. Come on, have a go. I don't know what got into you quacking. or it's like Ajahn Chah would say it's like looking at a river flowing saying why are you flowing that way why don't you flow the other way it's the nature of conditions to become otherwise we don't see the nature of conditions when we see the world through the marks or through the perceptions that get concretized and create the sense of things me, you, good, bad and that tendency then to, for perceptions to do that and then to complicate the world with all sorts of bits and pieces is what the Buddha called conceptual proliferation or papancha. All born of just not realizing what the mind is doing when it makes a mark. That actually that's a temporary, momentary thing. We don't see it. So when we're suffering, the Buddha said, it's because we've not we're not recognizing this process, not seeing things the way they are. Hence, the the classical meditations in Vipassana are to, to, to help undo this tendency to, to concretize everything. Is the Buddha encourages us to contemplate Nietzsche, not permanent dukkha not reliable anatta it's not a possession it's not a me it's not a mine so yes in language we can call it my body we can call me kitty Saro. the buddha said yes you can call me the awakened one he said, that's just a way of talking. It's important that we know it's a way of talking, but actually this body is changing all the time and it will go back to the earth. So in a sense, it's not a self. It's there and it's gone. When we start to sense that all these play ways in which we grasp, looking for certainty where there can be no certainty, then it's helpful it's 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 healthy when the weariness starts to come when we realize that the burn the it's never quenched we're never satisfied when we're looking in the wrong place for peace just to give you an example of how long we've been doing it the buddha talked like this which do you think is more the flood of tears which weeping and wailing you have shed upon this long way, hurrying and hastening through this round of rebirth, united with the unloved, separated from the loved, which is more, this or the waters of the four oceans? Which is more, the flood of tears or the water of the four oceans? The Buddha goes on. Long have you suffered the death of father and mother, of sons, daughters, brothers, and sisters. And whilst you were thus suffering, you have indeed shed more tears upon this long way than there is water in the four oceans. And thus have you long undergone suffering, undergone torment, undergone misfortune, and filled the graveyards full, truly, long enough to be weary with all the forms of existence, long enough to turn away and free yourselves from them all. not in aversion, but through clear seeing, realizing we're asking of conditions to do what they can't do. As we let go of that demand, that grasping, as we let go of that rejection, it's the possibility of sensing something else that's been here all along. What we grasp at are what's called conditions, they arise and cease. But the Buddha also talked about an unconditioned, something that does not arise, something that does not cease, something that does not die, something that is not compounded and put together, something that is not born. In fact, the Buddha said if there wasn't such a unborn, unoriginated, unformed, unconditioned, if there wasn't this sort of reality, there would be no escape from just endless birth and death. Endless frustration. But because there is an unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, unconditioned, deathless dharma. There is a possibility of escaping the wheel of suffering. The key is beginning through encouragement to see that our mark-making is misguided to start to really study these so-called solid things and to realize every single thing is not actually a thing. We call it a thing, but it's actually becoming otherwise every instant, just like the breath. Remember as Ajahn Chah said, if you can understand one thing, you'll understand all things. We call it the breath, my breath. But as we hone our capacity to be present and notice, as we witness, investigate, explore, get to really know the suchness of what we call my breath, we'll see that every instance vibrating, swelling, pausing, subsiding, the in-breath is there and it disappears. Then there's out-breath there's the in-breath, there's, it's, it's not a thing, and that's not only true of breath, it's true of candles, flowers, human bodies, mountains, solar systems, and more profoundly, feelings and thoughts and moods and perceptions. In this same famous teaching, the Vajra Sutra, the Buddha said, all these conditions, all conditioned dharmas, he said, are like dreams, illusions, bubbles, shadows, like dewdrops and a lightning flash. Contemplate them thus. All these conditions we're talking about, the things we make marks about, me, you, tomorrow, yesterday, being here, being there, feeling good, feeling bad. All conditioned dharmas are like dreams, illusions, bubbles, shadows, like dewdrops in a lightning flash. Contemplate them thus, thus, that's with presence, thus, knowing how is it, a bubble, it's there. You give it a name, it's a beautiful bubble, incredible colors on it it's there and pop it's gone empty Then notice how marks oh, it are didn't exist but whew, there's another bubble it's there again so you could say it is and then it pops it isn't there's a bubble again it is pop it isn't is and isn't the marks don't approach the reality we start to realize the language can't really reach the truth of it. It points. Language points. That's helpful. But to say a bubble is or to say it isn't doesn't really make it. When the conditions are there, it comes. When the conditions are there, it's gone. A bubble is a nietzsche dukkha, anatta. It's not a self. It doesn't have a... An independent entity ness. Like the dewdrop, the other image. The dewdrop, when I walk Jack in the morning, sometimes the dewdrops are awesome. The light, the jewels, the pure land of Dharmagiri. Millions of them. Wow. Remember that. And then the tiny, tiny, tiny dewdrops on the spider ribs. You don't see the spider ribs until the dewdrops are in a certain way. And then there's hundreds of spiderwebs in the morning glistening. Oh. We give it names, give them names. But the, the dewdrop when the is it really an independent entity? Soon as the sun comes, the temperature change, the light changes. They're gone. It's they're hooked up to all other conditions. Because of mark making the mind focuses on that. It doesn't see that actually what we call a dewdrop's woven and interconnected to all sorts of to everything else actually. Or lightning flash, here, wonderful place to watch lightning. Except the weather, the global warming, we're not, usually this time of year we get the big storms and then it clears up and hot and the big storms. So we don't have lightnings. But, oops, I just cut myself. But lightning, similarly, streaks, wow, unpredictable gorgeous but so elusive I'd never seen how a lightning had such a purple haze on it till I came to Africa and then wow But I couldn't have enough time to really catch it and I wanted to be ready for the next one and it never comes right where you think the Buddha said all conditions are actually like that lightning flash, they're there and they're gone Human beings, we get so dazzled by it. We're waiting, looking for the next one, and we miss what's really key. So if the lightning flash is the condition, what would the unconditioned be? Okay, it's just a simile. It's just an image. But what is unmoving? The lightning flash comes and dissolves back into what? The vastness. The space. Without that space, vast space, there wouldn't be lightning. The first disciple who had insight from the Buddha's teaching, Kandanyo, in a similar vein, the image that helped him realize the unconditioned was to compare conditions to guests at an inn. He said, when a guest comes to an inn, they stay for a while, but because that's not their home, they come and then they go. But the innkeeper, the host, that's home. The innkeeper remains. The guests come and go. Actually, these focuses of the grasping mind, these conditions are guests. In actuality, they come and go. Sounds come and go. Moods, good moods, and bad moods come and go. When we're aware that they're just guests, can we allow the guests to come and go? We ask the question what remains? What remains? When the sound is there and the sound dissolves, what remains? Does the listening die as the sound dies? Or isn't the listening nature, the knowing nature still remain? It could be compared to a sky, like the sky, the lightning dissolving back into the vastness of the sky. The conditions are guests, but the spaciousness of the knowing remains. This is something for us to look at deeply into our in our meditation. This is why letting go, why seeing change and realizing when we really see change and how unreliable and uncertain conditions are, then we the the compulsion to try to capture them starts to fade. We realize that's just futile. We start to see that it's not self. It's not mine. And we start to give back, relinquish, let go what isn't ours. It's not our possession. And in letting things come and go, there's the possibility of beginning to sense that which remains and has been here all along. but being so focused on marks and on conditions, we've missed the spaces around conditions. We've missed the silence after every mark, after every thought. As we start to get interested in the dying, the fading, the gaps between the thoughts, we can begin to taste and and inhabit again, rest again in our home as the host. That which knows witnessing the world arising and ceasing. That place of letting go To finish this evening, words from the Buddha. A Brahmin youth came and asked the Buddha a question. His name was Kappa. He said, Sir, There are people stuck midstream in the terror and the fear of the rush of the river of becoming, and death and decay overwhelm them. For their sake, sir, tell me where to find an island. Where is there solid ground beyond the reach of all this pain? Kappa said the master, for the sake of those people stuck in the middle of the river of becoming overwhelmed by death and decay, I will tell you where to find solid ground. There is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of no thingness, a place of non-possession, of non-attachment, it is the total end of death and decay, and this is why I call it Nibbana. There are people who in mindfulness have realized this and are completely cooled here and now. They do not become slaves working for Mara, working for death. They cannot fall into His power. Thank you for listening.